Surprise! We're taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us for an incredible higher education marketing and enrollment management conference February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Add Up Experience podcast, where we make education your business. This is Elvin Freitas, co-founder of the Add Up Experience. And before I get into my guests, which I'm very excited to talk to you about a whole bunch of stuff, I do want to say, please go to edupexperience.com to learn more about all of the uh, 700 plus episodes that we've have released, our president series, 240 something plus our book, Commencement at the Beginning of a New Era, and all of our podcast network shows that we have as well, and where we are going to be because we're all traveling and doing podcast live at different conferences. So go to edupexperience.com, sign up to be a part of our mailing list, and be in the know. Okay, great. Now, let me get right to it. So uh, today, our guest is, and I'm going to try to say this again, Pascal Charlo, and she is the Managing Director of the College Excellence Program at a little place you might be familiar with, the Aspen Institute. Charlotte. Oh, Pascal, how you doing? I messed it up. <laughs> it's, it's all good, Alvin. Good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here. And I, I'm notorious for our names. And stuff. <laughs> I apologize. So Pascal. Okay, Pascal. All right. So Pascal, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. So please go for it. Tell us all about the College Excellence Program. Many people are familiar with the Aspen Institute, uh, a global nonprofit that's really committed to an equitable, just, and free society through the Ideas Festival. And it's all about big ideas, and the College Excellence Program is no different. We are a program within the Aspen Institute, and our big idea is that we really believe in the ability of our nation's colleges and universities to help be drivers for talent and economic mobility in our country. It's a function that we've had for many years. And now more than ever, we're being called to step up our game and to deliver that promise, especially to communities that have been left behind and are at risk of being left even further behind if we don't improve those outcomes at scale. And we know it takes visionary college leaders to help achieve the standard. And a big part of what we do is equipping those leaders with knowledge, tools, and abilities to lead that change. Very often people think about our particular program and the Aspen Prize that we award every two years, uh, sharing a million dollars with the winners in order to acknowledge the impact they've had in advancing this mission. And it's related to four different dimensions of our work. The Aspen Prize is a great example of how we elevate excellence by recognizing institutions that do great work and what we also do is we study and we research not only the institutions that win, but all the others in the pipeline in order to identify best practices through the prize, as well as several other projects that we'll talk about later. And then when we take what we learn through this research and we convert it into tools, frameworks, playbooks, professional development, technical assistance that the field can use in order to improve student success at scale in sustainable ways. And then lastly, we try to support leaders doing this work. It includes presidents as well as senior teams. And we work with boards and systems as well to help share what we've learned 
through the research, the data-backed practices, and the tools that we've converted in order to help achieve these outcomes at scale. Got it. So let's jump into it. Let's talk a little bit more about the Aspen Prize. Talk us through that program. What was the idea that came about, if you know the history of that, and exactly how does it all work? How can uh, people apply, colleges apply, or what's the whole process? Sure. So we launched the prize back in 2011, and it's awarded every two years. How it works is we look at publicly available data in order to identify the highest performing community colleges. And it's usually about 10%, about 15% of the fields. In fact, we just started the process in October for the next prize being awarded in 2025. So we identify those 150 community colleges, and then we invite them, if they're interested in being considered, to share their data. So that way we move from the public data to the information that the institution would like to share. And they also are expected to answer a series of questions that can begin to give us a sense of why those outcomes were achieved and how. Once we have those responses, then we have a series of cycles with outside experts that analyze the data that looks at their responses and we keep funneling until we can get to a top 10. And when we reach the top 10, we actually deploy teams to visit those campuses. And oh, wow. we spend two days on the campuses. We meet with series of constituencies, faculty, community, staff, students, et cetera, to get the complete picture regarding the outcomes and the strategic intentional innovations that have led to those outcomes. And we just awarded the prize this past April. We had two winners this year, Imperial Valley in California and Amarillo College in Texas, two very different contexts, um, but they were able to demonstrate some pretty awesome innovations, which I'm happy to share if you're interested. Yeah, please do. People would love to hear that. Absolutely. Sure. So Amarillo College, the problem they were trying to solve is that the demographic in their community, like so many in our country right now, it was changing faster than their systems within the college could keep up with. Yeah. And so what they were able to do is they chose a strategy where they develop a student persona named Maria, which was really a composite informed by data of the different characteristics that were the most prevalent in their student population. They then used this persona called Maria in order to inform the decisions they made, in order to include student voices, to help faculty improve teaching and learning practices, to think about advisement, student supports, et cetera, so that the institution could evolve and improve student success for the main persona, Maria, but it didn't obviously um, target only Maria, but impacted all students who fell in and outside of that those composite characteristics. They introduced eight-week courses, mandatory tutoring, clear program maps, co-reg dev ed, and they tried to remove at least one poverty-based barrier for each student. If you fast forward several years, what you would see is the graduation rate at Amarillo is 6% above the national average. Wow. And that the five-year wages for a student who went to Amarillo as compared to a high school grad in the region is double. Whoa. So when we're talking about this moment in time where we are trying to rebuild trust with communities that have historically been underserved, these are the kind of outcomes that matter. Regarding Imperial Valley, what's really cool about what they were able to do is they were dealing with a different problem. They wanted to eradicate poverty in their community 
which is located near the Mexican border and is rural and is geographically isolated. They felt their students had limited options in order to make career path, make choices to, to find career pathways out of poverty. What they did is they started to invest in a college-going culture. They created advisement pipelines from high school through the two-year to the four-year. Wow. And if you think about that, when people have limited resources, time and money are things they can't waste. Yes. So if you're able to clearly identify how to maximize people's time and efficiently provide them pathways to social mobility, you start to see different outcomes for those communities. And so the reforms they introduced was reimagining high school advisement and that pipeline through transfer, like I mentioned. So that involved working more closely with advisors to also take advantage of the right dual enrollment courses for students. They began to develop partnerships with university partners that were not impacted by their geographic isolation. So now people started to have options. But one of the most transformative things they did is they reimagined course scheduling so that it was based on the students' needs. And then faculty selected once the student schedule was devised rather than the other way around, which happens at most institutions. Wow, that's amazing. As a matter of fact, we actually were very lucky. We had Dr. Russell Laurie Hart. Sure. Think, yeah, he was a former president there at Amarillo uh, College. He was that's on right. episode number 500. Uh, and he talked about Maria. That's so funny. He totally talked about that, which is great. And then, Wow. That whole flipping the curriculum and scheduling the course, that's brilliant. I, I've, I've never heard of that. And I, I think people listening will get a kick out of that one. That's brilliant. So no wonder why they won. That makes a lot of sense. That's fantastic. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Okay. So I wanted to move on to the post-graduation student success workforce and transfer part of what the work that you're doing. So can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So one of the things we, we think a lot about is the important work community colleges do. And when you think about the evolution of the sector, we saw an explosion in enrollment in the 60s, right? That was really grounded in an access mission. It was diversity. There was veterans, people of color, lower income students, all of a sudden getting access to an education. As a result of that explosion, the sector started to discover that we needed to introduce reforms to help those populations complete. And so that's when we started to see DevEd reforms and guided pathway work. And as a result of both of those efforts and as well as many others, we saw the completion rates start to go up. Mm. When you unpack those completion rates and get into disaggregated data, it didn't always mean that the same populations that gain access were completing. Mm, interesting. And even if they were completing, it didn't always mean that the degrees they were earning were degrees of value that was actually changing people's lives. Yeah. And so if you think about, for example, a gen ed AA degree is really intended as a transfer degree, mm -hmm. right? But on its own, the value is just not as strong as you may find in other AS programs, for example, that are designed to be more terminal degrees. As a result, what we do with, in, at Aspen at the CEP program is we start by looking at post-graduation success. Mm -hmm. We disaggregate the data to look at who is succeeding and where are they succeeding. And we ask institutions to start with that information and understanding and then examine their systems 
and the quality of teaching and learning and thinking about equity and access to determine if they are set up to ensure the most amount of students can be successful through the lens of equity and excellence. Because of this approach, we have been leaning very heavily in looking at how we can provide more tools for colleges and universities, given our lens of, of looking at the best data-informed practices that lead to outcomes and research, is trying to identify what we can provide to help institutions that are really digging into their post-graduation success to look at how they can improve their systems so that those outcomes can increase at scale. And there, there are two particular efforts I wanted to share with you that we're really excited about. And one of them is the Unlocking Opportunity Network, which we just launched this year. And, and Unlocking Opportunity, it's an ambitious six-year project with 10 colleges. Mm -hmm. And these colleges are committed to closing equity gaps and improving outcomes for students by delivering credentials of value to more of those students. Mm -hmm. And so in English, what that means is really unpacking all of the programs at these colleges, looking at the disaggregated data and trying to understand, is there enough access? Mm -hmm. If there is access, who's not succeeding and why? Are there any interventions, especially as it relates to advisement and program maps that could improve those outcomes? How might they work with faculty? If you think, for example, about the Amarillo example and centering Maria, in the teaching and design, for example. Mm -hmm. And so there, as by working in this community of 10, we also will accelerate the movement forward because you have the best rubbing shoulders with the best. And so I love sports analogies. It's like you get the best NBA team and you got the best point guard, the best center, the best forward. That's a different kind of team mm -hmm. than if you're trying to build a team. So we're bringing these really strong institutions together from very different contexts to try to improve these outcomes through unlocking opportunities. So what we will learn along the way will be translated into research and tools that we can share with the field. And hopefully the goal would be to accelerate progress across the country by demonstrating how post-graduation value can be achieved by backward design. Okay, let me just follow up real quick on, on this. These 10 colleges and universities, they're, like you said, they're colleges and universities, right? They're not just community colleges? I'm sorry, they are community colleges. Oh, okay. But we're working directly with the community college who are then working with their university partners. But we are not in this project working with the university partners. Gotcha. Something I've always been curious about is why the focus on community college? I think I know the answer, but I'd love to hear your, your response to that. And when you say, why the focus on community college for transfer? Oh, no, in general, I noticed that the prize is community colleges, the transfer programs, community colleges. I'm just curious. There's a lot of focus on community colleges from the Aspen Institute. So I was wondering why that is. Great question. So if, if you look at the data, there's about a third of college students who are in the community colleges. A significant number are people of color and low income. Yeah. And so if we think about the mission of Aspen, to be an equitable, free, and just society, that cannot happen if we are not delivering value to such a significant portion of our population. If you think, for example, at, at, about transfer, there's about 80% of students who go to a community college want to transfer. 
Of that 80%, about 30% actually transfer. And of that 30%, about 15 to 16% actually earn the credential. But when you look at those numbers and you think about people who have that intention and who are not able to achieve their goal, and then you add to the fact that a lot of the good jobs coming in 2030, about over 70% of them require higher education mm -hmm. and people are not able to earn that credential. There's a real problem in our society. Yeah. And you just can't get to an equitable, just and free society if people are not able to find pathways out of poverty. And at the end of the day, that's the American dream. That is the American experiment, yeah. right? Like who we are is a nation that provides people opportunity. And so if, if those opportunities are foreclosed because of systemic barriers, shame on us. It's yeah. not on the individual. It's an institutional issue or it's a policy issue. But that's why it's so important that we can improve those outcomes at scale. Gotcha. Okay, great. Now I wanna, I'd like to move on to your Aspen Presidential Fellowship Program. So can you talk about that? Attention. Are you ready to elevate your institution's marketing and enrollment strategies? Join the EdUp Experience podcast at the Insights EDU conference, February 20th to 22nd in Phoenix, Arizona. Don't miss out on this opportunity to hear from engaging speakers from industry-leading companies like Google, LinkedIn, Adobe, and higher ed leaders. Learn the latest marketing and enrollment strategies to grow your programs. Register now at insightsedu.com and use promo code add up to save $50 off your registration. Attention. Absolutely. And before I do, I, I just wanted to, because you got me heated up now, Elvin. You can't <laughs> go now. But, but this. But I think there's another piece to this because I talked a bit about unlocking opportunity, but, and you touched on it a little bit in the last question. Let's talk about transfer for a minute. Ah, okay. Um, because transfer is a, a very important function that is in the mission of our two-year institutions. It's not exclusive. And it can get lost when we think about two-year institutions primarily for workforce, immediately after obtaining the two-year credential. But when we think about transfer and, and building on the statistic I share with you, where such a large percentage of students, especially from underserved communities, start there, it's so important for us to invest in the pipeline that will ensure students can start at a two-year and actually complete that credential at, at the four-year. Mm -hmm. and, and across our country, there are different approaches, but part of what we have learned by studying the best examples, such as UCF and Valencia or Nova and George Mason, is that it's got to be a presidential priority. Mm -hmm. Both the two-year and four-year presidents have to decide it's important to them that their institutions build a strong enough pipeline. It cannot be outsourced to their number two or to some other position that is not at the systemic level. Secondly, we know advisement matters. The alignment of the advisement across both institutions, like I mentioned with Imperial Valley, is mm -hmm. absolutely key. And then the program pathways, that students are taking the right sequence of courses so they can be set up for academic success. And that's where, of course, faculty also play a role in both institutions working together to ensure that curriculum alignment makes the most amount of sense. And for us, 
we invest in transfer in a couple of ways. We have something called the transfer intensive. We actually work with the two-year and four-year colleges together. Mm -hmm. So this is project distinct from unlocking opportunity. We have these teams are part of a, a cohort experience with us where over a 10-month period, we help them develop a plan so that we can achieve the three goals I just mentioned for transfer. Mm -hmm. We also work through the American Talent Initiative with a series of colleges that have some of the best graduation rates in the country, about 137 of them. And they're interested in growing their low income and student of color populations. So mm -hmm. we work with those schools as well to increase their recruitment and retention of transfer students. And right now we're working on two exciting projects. One includes an updated transfer playbook, which will be released next year that introduces a lens of equity and access mm -hmm. to transfer work. And then the second one is really cool about tracking transfer, where we're going to look at every state in order to understand what the transfer outcomes are like for all students, especially Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous students and their ability to obtain a degree. So stay tuned for more to come. But if there's nothing else folks take away from this conversation, please consider how much they are elevating, prioritizing, and centering transfer, which is a viable pipeline for really talented students. Yeah, no, 100%. A lot, a lot of people on the podcast talk about how important that is and figuring out also prior learning as well, which is very important with adults. Yeah, exactly. So you did mention the importance of the presidents being involved, right? That, that number two. So then that does lead back into the presidential fellowship program. So talk to us about that. Sure. It's, we are so excited that every year we bring a new cohort of aspiring presidents. I started to talk a little bit about the explosion of enrollments in the 60s. And as a companion to that, we saw a whole generation of presidents be hired because we needed more presidents um, to lead these institutions. Guess what's happening now? They're all retiring at the same time. <laughs> yeah. right? and, and so we've been noticing over the last few years, uh, so many positions are opening up and the pipeline cannot produce presidents fast enough. Mm -hmm. And so our commitment, given what I've shared with you so far, is to support aspiring presidents to consider adopting a mindset of reform. So we yeah. think it's great people wanna be presidents and we wanna provide them with the knowledge, tools, and support to be presidents who can lead change. Mm -hmm. And you shared Russell Lowry Hart, he's one of our fellows. That's a great example mm -hmm. of what it means to utilize these models of excellence in order to transform your community. And it's not a plug and play, it's just inspiring presidents to think and see what's possible and what they could use in their context and modify it in ways that are relevant. And so the, our, the Rising Presidents Program is actually in the process of accepting applications up until December the 11th. Um, we would love for any of your listeners interesting to please reach out and if not apply directly, certainly ask any questions of interest. But it's a wonderful opportunity for very senior leaders, administrative leaders, provosts, vice provosts, vice chancellors. We've even had a few deans and VPs consider it. It's a great opportunity to examine your leadership ability, but also to begin to cultivate a reform identity. But basically, we look at leading for student success, leading for internal change, and partnering for collective action. Gotcha. So talk us through the selection process first, and then 
maybe we can touch upon the the curriculum or the experience that they have themselves. I know that you were an Aspen Prize winner as well when you were at Miami Dade, right? And Kendall caught the Kendall campus. So if you can talk about again, what's the criteria, what's the selection process, and then maybe the curriculum or experience while they the fellows are going through it. Sure. So at the so just a, a point of clarification, I had I was also a fellow um, when I was at Miami Dade, but winning the prize we won in 2019, and that's a different process. Ah, that's right. Sorry about it. It's all good. So I'll speak though about the fellowship process. And if you want to go back to the other question, we can circle back. But it's an it starts with an application. And then we have an interview. Um, and after the interview, it moves very quickly to uh, a reduced list of folks who are advanced to the next level. And then we make a decision. Our commitment is to identify people who are serious about the presidency. And secondly, who have evidence of strong leadership qualities, and then finally, who are interested in reform. Not everyone is, and that is okay. But if you are, we really wanna, we really wanna meet you to find out if there's some synergy there. Once selected, there's an orientation, and then there are a series of sessions. We meet three times in person in different parts of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and we take care of all the accommodations, et cetera. You, you basically show up and participate in a multi-day session. Um, and then you have work in between. And what we're trying to also have you do is to look at your institution through the lens of our curriculum. So there's a lot of data analysis of student success and other assessments inside of your current institution. You will be assigned a mentor and those mentors are former college presidents, former chancellors, and even sitting presidents who mm -hmm. are committed to growing the next generation of leaders you become a member of our Aspen network, which gives you access to a deeper bench, about 300 uh, alumni that have participated in the programs. And what's really powerful, in addition to what you learn in the curriculum, is that very often people are maintaining those networks once the fellowship ends. So when you do decide to look for a job, you will call someone in the network to learn more about institutions that they may have they either are located in or know something about, or even contacting myself or Josh. We all are available to you. And this is so important, Elvin, because the generation of leaders that are in the pipeline now, many of them don't have these networks. Yeah. They point. are talented. They are capable. They are ripe and ready for the presidency. And yet they haven't had the opportunity to build a leadership network at this level. So it's also closing a gap as we diversify the leadership pipeline. Gotcha. Just to follow up, a couple quick questions. Number one, uh, I'd I love to know more than anyone, is it the life uh, expectancy of a presidency is shorter and shorter in terms of them being in the president? Not the, the, but it used to be uh, a lot longer and now it's shorter and shorter uh, mm -hmm. to be a college university president. Uh, why do you think that's happening? And what are some of the things that we can do to change that? And, and number two, how are you going about trying to recruit uh, that uh, potential fellow uh, to apply? And where do you think the pipeline is coming from or should be coming from? Because I feel as though that's a really uh, important topic right now in higher education. We need to build the pipeline. Like you said, there's so many opportunities now. So we need to build that pipeline. What are your thoughts around that? 
So you have asked three really good questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm enjoying it very much. I'm, I'm going to start with recruitment, then we go to building the pipeline. And then I think the big question, I'm going to buy myself some time to get an answer to. <laughs> in terms of the recruitment, certainly the alumni that have participated in the program are great ambassadors to identify more talent. Yeah. And people who are ready for the program. Because we have um, more alumni who are sitting presidents, they're tapping talent on their teams. But in addition to their networks, if they have a new provost for academic affairs that they think would be good for the program, it actually is great to help them advance their work to have some senior leaders on their team mm -hmm. in the same conversation. So that's the second way that we do it. I think the third is through work that we do in general. So I mentioned that we deploy resources in different ways. We do technical assistance, professional development, keynote addresses, consultancies. Mm -hmm. And so we are visible in different ways through associations and on campuses. And as um, people learn about our work, they are often drawn to want to build their ability to execute it in their own communities. So we're very committed, Elvin, to ensuring that we are as accessible, open, and available so that we are creating a diverse pipeline to the presidency. That would be my, my first answer to your question. But it, it does take people doing some self-reflection to determine if they have an appetite for change. Yeah. Because what we know from change leadership, it takes courage, it takes a desire to take strategic risks, it takes the ability to build teams, certain forms of communication, right? There are core competencies required. And I think that's the other piece going to your second question around building the pipeline. It's a pipeline that we want people to come to with a desire to make a difference. We don't need more presidents who are just holding space. Mm, good call. Right? We don't need folks just doing compliance, submitting reports. We want our colleges to deliver promises to the communities that we care about. And that's going to take some work. Yeah. So part of building that pipeline, if you are a leader at an institution, are you creating opportunities for the junior staff and the leadership teams on your campus to build that muscle? Mm -hmm. Are you providing the right professional development? Are you providing the right feedback? Are you creating enough strategic opportunities for other people to collaborate, especially if they can learn and grow from one another, what kind of culture are you cultivating on your campus? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, when people don't see that type of leadership in action, it can be more difficult for them to even imagine it for themselves. Yep. So the quality of leadership that you are bringing to your community is just as important as who you hire and how you're helping to build a pipeline of innovators and reformers and, and most importantly, ensuring that people are developing in the right ways to lead. It takes knowledge, skill, and abilities to lead a campus, to mm. lead a system, right? That's very different than just teaching a class or just owning your own initiative. And I'm not diminishing any of those things. My point is when you start to think at scale, it activates a different set of skills. And I worry that not enough leaders are taking responsibility to build that capacity on their campus without attachment as to whether or not the person stays with them or not. But just as, a, as an investment in the field, 
to helping to level up the workforce, I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And to your final question regarding the seat of the presidency, it is a really special job. I was a campus president here in Miami at Miami-Dade College of the Kendall campus. And I cannot tell you how many days it brought so much joy to see people's lives changing as a result of the environment that I helped to co-create along with other members of my senior team, staff, and with the community. It's not very many jobs where you get to do that. Um, and graduation, standing and shaking the hands of thousands of people, right? And seeing what it means to them to have achieved this really important milestone. It's really, it's a calling. It's a really special opportunity. And I think what we're finding and what we see in the fellowships is that more and more people are answering the call from a sense of mission. Right. Not everyone is just looking for a job. And again, we have a bias because of what we select for. But it's very powerful to center your vision for a presidency in a sense of purpose, given the complexity of the job. And so what you're alluding to when you talk about the short tenure, it's related to a lot of the conditions that have changed since COVID. Yeah. Enrollment declines. Um, we're dealing with a changing workforce yeah. that in many ways is introducing a series of variables that may not be aligned with programming. There's with programs, academic programs, the workforce, more and more people don't want to work on a campus. So you have a mm -hmm. revolving door. And if you think about a role like an advisor, how disruptive that is. Yeah. And so there are a number of factors that have converged to make the job really complicated. And yet it's not impossible, right? It is a job that is being done very well by many. It's, it's not impossible at all. I think what this moment is doing is really challenging people to be clear about their why. Mm, yeah. With that clarity, you will withstand what comes your way. You will build the right networks, right? You will try to make the right decisions to position your community and your college for success. You will build an ecosystem and you can help lead that work and you're inspired and you're motivated and you will get tired, right? That is part of it. But like any other job, you figure out the right supports so that you can keep running that race. But it's not a job for the weary, but probably one of the best jobs um, one can ever have. And, and I, the personal transformation that you undergo in the job is just quite special. Because you will not be the same person once you have led an institution. I am not a mom. I don't have any children. And I share that because who I had to become as the head of a campus, I would assume it's like being a parent where it's not about you anymore. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if you approach the job a certain way, your ego could mature and not be the dominant lens from which you see the world. Your ability to love unconditionally has the potential to expand because you forgive very often in service of the work you're trying to do. Because when you're thinking about the goals of your institution, they are more important than what may feel like a personal slight. You hear me from this, from the seat of the president. And so I can go on and on. Cause I, I think it's just such a special role and, and people who are called to do that work are such special work. And we should be so grateful 
when we find leaders who are committed to, to doing the good work on behalf of the community because it's such a gift. Yeah, no, I agree. And we have been blessed to speak to, to many of them on this podcast mm -hmm. and, and their passion and their commitment. And I love the idea of the, them being a parent, <laughs> even if they're not a parent. I've seen that. I, I've heard that on this podcast and that's very powerful. Thank you all for that. I appreciate that. Now, last two questions. Yes. Did you miss anything that you wanted to cover today? Anything about all the different programs that we talked about or anything else that you want to mention? Now is the time. And the last question is, mm -hmm. what do you see as the future of higher education? So the only thing I will add before we go to the future question is that I mentioned early on about the applications for the fellowship closing on December the 11th. If you don't mind, Elvin, I'd love to share a couple of email addresses. Oh, please do. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Go ahead. Great. So if people want to apply, the application is located at higheredaspeninstituteorg backslash rising presidents. So that's higheredaspeninstituteorg backslash rising presidents. And then if you just have any questions and you're not sure if this is the right fit for you or if it's the right time, shoot us an email. And the email address is cep.fellowship at aspeninstitute.org. And I'll make sure to share this information with you, Elvin. Okay, excellent. Thank you. The last question you asked was related to the, the future of, of higher ed. I, I would love to leave your listeners with this. We are all consumers and we have moved to a world where we can get whatever we want when we want it. I don't know about you. I get super excited after I click on an Amazon package <laughs> coming in <laughs> the mailbox. You would think it was Christmas because I just want to rip something open. But this, this notion that I can have what I want and I've selected what I want and I get it when I need it has shaped the mindset and the expectations of a new generation of students. And it's, up, it's elevated the stakes on what it means to deliver value. So people are not separating out the experience they're having on Amazon and the experience they're having on a campus, mm -hmm. right? You want the same level of service and customization and satisfaction that you get in other parts of your life inside of, of a higher ed context. And I think it's going to be so important. And this is already starting to happen, but the pace is not fast enough mm -hmm. is that we really got to embrace the idea of delivering value. Yes. Plain and simple. It's it's not a it's not any more complicated than that. And delivering value mean was my time worth it by coming to your institution. Mm -hmm. And there's an element of that model that has to filter down and cascade to every role and function in the organization. It cannot just sit at the president's level, but it has to sit in the culture. It has to sit with your public safety. It has to integrate into every aspect of the experience if we are to compete with the other options people have for their time and their money. And so my biggest concern is that we are not able to pivot fast enough so that we don't lose as many students that we are likely to lose if we move at the pace that we do in this regard. That's very powerful. Thank you so much for those uh, insights, Pascal. This has been a great conversation. And I just want to first thank you so much for taking your time because I know time is so precious, right? And so for you to spend some time with us and talking about everything that you're doing, it's much, much appreciated. 
And let me outro you. I'm going to try this again. Pascal Charlot, Managing Director of the College Excellence Program at the Aspen Institute. Thank you so much for being with us, Pascal. Thank you. Have a wonderful holiday. You as well. With that, ladies and gentlemen, you've just erupted. Oh, yeah. Attention, higher ed marketing and enrollment management professionals. We are taking the EdUp Experience podcast to Insights EDU. Join us at Insights EDU on February 20th to 22nd, 2024 in Phoenix, Arizona. Gain insight into the latest higher education trends and cutting edge marketing strategies that'll take your institution's enrollment to a whole new level. This is your opportunity to connect with higher education leaders and marketing experts from across the country. Comprehensive presentations, engaging panel discussions, and more. Insights EDU will equip you to position your institution for growth. Register now at insightsedu.com and use the code EDUP to save $50 off your registration. Can you afford to miss this conference? I don't think so.